You're listening to World Building for Masochists. And we're wondering why we do this to ourselves. Well, all this pandemic reading and documentary binging, I have to use it for something. I'm Rowena Miller. I'm Marshall Ryan Moreska. I'm Cass Morris. And this is episode 35. It's the circle of life. And it moves us all. <laughs> <laughs> How are we, friends? How are we doing today? We are here, and we are enthusiastic about world building, even if we're not enthusiastic about anything else happening today. True. Really? Yeah. Yeah, it's very true. It's it's a low-energy day out there, friends, um, but which is why I put more light in this room so that I could, you know, hype myself up at least that way so. yes marshall looks like he's coming to us from cloud city today uh, <laughs> you can't see him but it's true i think that's the excitement that is that, that we have right now we have I, have, I have no Pretty announcements much. or anything i think right about when this airs i will be appearing at Capclave, which is you know going to be a virtual con but still that's a thing i'll be appearing there and i have a panel it's me with Fonda Lee and Rebecca Kwong and Sean McGuire and Gail Martin. So I'm not intimidated in the slightest. <laughs> that sounds awesome. I love it. Yes. It sounds like it's going to be a fantastic panel. And I, I'm very much looking forward to it. Oh, actually, I, I sh yeah, I should mention that slightly after this airs, um, the, the conference that I go to every year, but of course I'm not going to this year, Sirens, which is wonderful um conference that celebrates women and other marginalized genders in fantasy fiction is doing a sirens at home towards the end of october um it is free be a couple evenings and weekend days of material so if you have heard me shouting about it before or would like to hear me shout about it um check out sirensconference.org and get all the info because it's awesome I, I'm on I'm on staff now. That's how much I love that con. Is that I went from attending to hey, do you want to do some things? Like sure. So that'll be that. It's not quite the same as getting to see everyone in Denver, but it will be something at least. Well, and you know, I as much as this year stinks in terms of everything being virtual and not getting to see people in real life, it does give people an opportunity to get to things that you might not otherwise get to. And things moving to free kind of gives a nice, you know, sampler for if, if affordability was a problem or you just weren't sure that you could spend the money. This is the time that, you know, you can jump in and get at least a taste of what it's like and hopefully next time around be able to to do the thing in person. So, yay, there's your optimism for the day. Now I'm spent. <laughs> yay. That, that was no, that was very that was very sweet and that was just what we needed i think was that little that little light of brightness to to, to come in and, and raise us up just just just, 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 an just, inch. Smidgen. just an inch <laughs> just a smidgen <laughs> and and of course 
my next book, The People of the City, comes out at the end of the month, and Cass's next book comes out in December. So if you have not pre-ordered those things, consider it. Consider the, the great merits of pre-ordering those things now, because then you will get them the day they it's come like out. It's like a present yeah. to yourself. Give future you a gift. And to us. And we need those right now. We need <laughs> <laughs> It's also true. All right. So we are talking um, life stages today. Um, so kind of the how how do people in your world like move through their lives and when do they hit different stages in the life cycle? And I guess it kind of makes sense to start with childhood as a life stage to, to talk about since we all start there. Um, at least in this world, at least in, unless you're Merlin. at least in this world, we all start there. I mean, that's a choice that you can make, right? <laughs> you can Benjamin Button like your entire like world if you want backward. If you're doing weird things with magic, can you have a reason why, say, like childhood is just skipped? Like, do you have like Borg maturation chambers where they, you know, just get you up to adulthood and pour all the information you'll need into your head or something like that like is i mean do you have like budding pod people who emerge from the pods fully grown or something like that like there there certainly if you're gonna be doing weird world building magic there's ways you can choose to skip childhood or make it be that somebody emerges as a fully adult human though that's usually an excuse to have somebody, you know, be radically naive but also sexy at the same time. And you don't. It can, it can go to bad places if you're not careful. <laughs> it can go to bad places, but but certainly those tropes exist, and you know, you can have a magical excuse to do that if that's if that's the bad trope you choose to do. I mean, because or choose human, to human childhood is a long time. It's a really it long time. Um, which I think it's like, if you don't, if you don't think about it, it's easy to forget that honestly, like taking 20 years to get to maturation, like, I mean, even if you take, you know, that that's like a quarter of your life that you're spending not quite fully fledged adult person, even if you in a fantasy world bump that earlier and say, okay, you know, we treat people who are, 15 16 as adults in my world that's still a really big percentage of your life that you're spending as a kid as a developing person as a in many times second class citizen or do you create a race where that happens quicker or happens much much slower i mean like i i keep thinking about the idea that baby yoda is 50 which boggles <laughs> my mind on like <laughs> so many different levels because like that implies that that species is in babyhood for decades and how how do they does their homeworld not have any predators because like how do they how do they not get well, like am i the only person who like finds this extremely not cute maybe it's just because i currently have a very young child but like the idea of of even a cute creature being that like toddler curious but also destroying everything and also really unreasonable and very high maintenance for that long is kind of terrifying for decades it's not cute it's horrible like... but if you think about that 
percentage thing, like you were saying, um, you know, when the species lives to be a thousand years old, as opposed to a hundred, then it makes more sense that their percentage of life spent in dependency would be would be less. Though that that is a thing about like anything that shows us like long lived creatures that like like species that live for hundreds of years, if not thousands. I, I find it fascinating how often it's sh- we will see fiction that shows characters like that treat passing years so casually like oh like i remember this from the belgaria like the idea like belgarath is seven thousand years old he once just spent like a century studying one thing and like forgot that a century passed and there's another character who spends 500 years just like watching a mountain in case something happens and i'm like you know even if you are semi-immortal I feel like you would just use your time. You, you wouldn't reach that point where you would be like, mm, time has no meaning. So like, yeah, 500 years. I'll just sit here and make sure <laughs> nothing happens with that mountain. You know, I, I got, I got the time <laughs> <laughs> like that. That just feels weird to me. And maybe it is my, you know, my, you know, aging mortal flesh that just can't comprehend the, their, their strange ways, but it just, it boggles my mind that that's a, such a common trope of immortals or v- species that live very long treating decades or centuries like they're a couple weeks. Well, or doing very boring things with them. Like, do you not still yeah. get bored? Like, I understand you've got more time to deal with, <laughs> which is cool, so you can invest in long-term <laughs> projects. Go you. But, like, do, do you not run out of attention span at, at some point? I don't know. <laughs> I would get into so much more trouble if right. I had centuries. You know, it'd be like, all right, two weeks here, two weeks there. I'm going every place, <laughs> all over. <laughs> yeah, you would think, yes, I live much longer, so thus I'm going to do more. <laughs> but it it feels like characters with that kind of time always do less with it. Mm-hmm. And maybe it is a question of if you have that kind of time, you respect it less. I don't know. It's But I find that a fascinating trope. So I, I liked, if we can swing back around, Marshall, your other point about, like, does the homeworld of Baby Yoda have no predators? Because a child yeah. is very vulnerable. And that's a, it's a very vulnerable child. I mean, that's what works in the show, right? Is it's a right. very vulnerable little bundle of ears. Um, that's but, the plot. <laughs> so, I mean, if you think about any child um, of any species is going to spend some time in vulnerability whether that's like they're born very small or they're eggs for a while and those are very fragile or they're humans and they're completely incompetent at everything for Mm. years you know how how do you build a society that deals with that that deals with the the care of vulnerable developing small things who's watching out for them how are they kept safe not just from predators but you know from themselves and from falling into things and yeah all of that it's i was i watch a lot of nature documentaries and i was thinking about this in terms of like herd animals the other day because herd animals pop out and they're ready to go i mean they still need some looking after and some protecting but they come out ready to run because they have to yeah but (laughs) not every animal works like that i mean we come out barely cooked Um, (laughs) we're still doughy in the middle We are. Our brains are are too big. That's why we're born earlier than is safe. But it's society that allows that to happen. Like that happens when you have, you know, a a common sense of the need to protect 
the babies and and the ability to do so and and all of that so yeah who who is doing the care giving and what level of care is it are they are they in their individual households are they are they kept together is there some kind of communal looking after children um are they taken away and raised in pods or something like there's lots of options for yeah. What do we do with these young, squishy things? It's definitely a, a choose, don't presume kind of moment because, I mean, I think it often just defaults to, well, you know, whoever birthed it takes care of it, unless there's a tragedy, in which case, you know, something interesting happens with this foundling. But you can do other things, and especially if you work, you know, into a magical second world where other things are possible, like you have formula invented much earlier or you have some kind of magical substitute for these things. I mean, you, you can play with that. And so you can play with things like babies are raised by elders in the society or babies are raised communally or dads are in charge of babies for whatever reason, you know? So I think that you can you can mess around with that stuff and kind of ask yourself, what, what, what do I want to do? What story do I want to tell? Um, and not necessarily relegate moms to only like birthing children and then staying home with them. Like that's that's a choice that you can make. I think also the question of what, how does a society even regard childhood? That I think the idea of, of childhood as this kind of like magical, special time of development and it's, it's innocent and wonderful. This is pretty new historically, like... Those damn romantic poets. Yeah, it's like Victorian era, we start to get into this. It's like before that, no, we didn't think of childhood necessarily as this special magical time. Children were like little miniature adults who were more likely to die. So how does your society think about children? Are they, I mean, I think it's pretty normal for kids to be considered you know, vulnerable, precious in some sense, we protect them, but it, it doesn't have to be quite as squishy as we necessarily think of, of childhood in our modern sense. Yeah, are they allowed that that innocence and is that preserved for them, that sense of a bubble around them from the world, or are they adults in training? And at what point does that change from, from one state to the other? Because eventually, hopefully, they are adults in training, but like how long does that period last if you do have the bubble? Or is it sort of never there? Like, all right, you have motor skills now, time to work. Yeah. <laughs> time to start doing something here. Time to work. Some wool. You can do that. It's good. And you've got tiny hands that can do fine, <laughs> finer things than the rest of us. Or, ooh, you can fit, you can fit in that space that the rest of us can't. So, so you're gonna go down in the mine and crawl through that. Yep, you can fit underneath the looms. So crawl under there and get those parts working again. <laughs> but that that was typical in a lot of places, and probably is still typical in a lot of places. If we're if we're being honest, that the idea of, you know. That's perfectly good labor that you're leaving on the table. So why would you do that? And especially they can do things that, that a grown human can't. So of course you you want them to, to do it. And that's that especially when you're writing when you're writing a pre industrial society kind of fantasy, I mean, that's definitely a concept you need to think about of what do they what do they consider childhood to be? Is is education even a remote concern or is it like no every hand on deck needs to be working to make sure that the harvest comes in and we all get to eat this winter you know and i think that you know we're kind of joking about it in a sort of negative fashion but 
the idea of everyone contributing to a society and a family unit, um, whatever that family unit is being very tight and very, you know, everyone's contributing to a goal doesn't necessarily have to be a negative thing. It doesn't have to be, hey, junior, crawl underneath the loom or go down in the mine shaft. It can be still very nurturing and very warm, but not with the idea of childhood as set aside or different, but as kind of like you have your role in this group to make it function. As the, and, you know, what does education look like then? Yeah. Is is it a priority at all? Or is it like your education is you learn to do the jobs that we need you to do. That's your education. <laughs> or is it, is there a more structured form of education? Or is it, you know, learn to read a little bit you can or do the numbers that might be useful to you? Or is there something... Does society value there being something more formal or not? Well, and is it... Is there a sense of education for its own sake or education to build a, you know, a, a, a liberal arts education is designed to build a free thinking society and, and to prepare you to be a citizen? It works sometimes better than others, but that's the goal <laughs> of a liberal arts education is to, is to, you know, it's not, it's liberal as in to be, um, liber, to be, to be free, to be a free citizen. Like, is there that concept or is your education not necessarily like here's the absolute job that has to be done but are there apprenticeships are you working inside that structure of education rather than a generalized education structure does every kid get the same education or do they get specialized early on based perhaps either on the family trade or if they show an early aptitude for something um, or a magical gift for something perhaps do they do they have separate separate education systems for that religious education becomes a thing like there's there's lots of different we could do and i'm sure we will at some point a whole other episode on on education (laughs) and magic schools um but there's lots of options for what what the training of of young humans can look like and of course school can become a thing that you do with those young humans where do we put them all day while we're working well And then I think that those connections that are built between those young humans and whoever is educating them, whether it's school, whether it's an apprenticeship, whether it's a religious education or some other form of education, I mean, that's that part of your society then, too, because those bonds can be very important and they can be something that informs how people think about where they fit in society. You know, who is is who you apprenticed with just as important as who your birth family was. You could definitely say in some cases you know you could run with that idea your apprentice family becomes an adopted family or something along those lines um so you can certainly play with how society is structured hand in hand with education systems tying into that as as children get older at what point is there that phase of hey now that you're this age it's time you've do this or thus maybe you do go an apprentice and thus effectively join another family or it's you know it's time for you to go make it on your own or is it the cultural norm for people to stay until they're much older like at what point is that transition and does does adolescence or teenager mean anything to that society (laughs) like the concept of like a of what we consider like a teenage life is very very new yeah like, I think yeah it we, really didn't kick in until the 50s yeah we, we, we kind of invented that in the 50s in a lot of ways not that <laughs> not that teenagers didn't exist and that there weren't other things that maybe had similar you know 
parallels, but like the concept of teenagerhood as a thing doesn't come around yeah. until the 20th century in a lot of ways. Of the more delicate transition from child to adult that, you know, like, let's have some fuzzy time where you're both but neither. <laughs> well, the whole idea of having a culture surrounding it, that's that's its yeah. own thing and set apart and exists somewhat created by the teenagers, but also the youths, those youths and their, sorry, <laughs> I felt really old there for a minute, um, <laughs> but created by and participated in by, you know, a certain group of adolescent people that that's that's not a given you don't have to have that no and now it's become also a, a marketing feature as well that's that's a key target demographic for lots of products is this very brief honestly amount of time there are only so many humans experiencing it at any given point um but it's it's become so well defined and overdefined now as a distinct period which it didn't didn't used to be the the shift i think to adulthood used to happen a lot faster probably for a lot of reasons everything from needing to reproduce earlier in life needing to become economically viable as a person earlier in life to mildly shorter lifespans and we're going to talk about that later which is you know something of a myth but yeah i just think it's it has it has become its own thing and i'm really curious you know, my, my future lives will have to tell me, you know, in the centuries, how long this idea of teenagerdom lasts. Like, does it fade away again in a century or so? I, I don't know. It's going to be interesting to see what that what that does. Or does it extend even further? Because, mm. like, now, you know, the idea of the sort of, like, well, you're not really an adult adult yet. Like, that's, that keeps getting kind of, like, pushed on down the line. Um <laughs> where you know it's not uncommon for you know in one's early 20s mid 20s late 20s even further to you know still be like yeah i'm not i'm not ready to adult yet and society's like okay that's fine well i feel like (laughs) and that can be currently it's so tied to economic viability can can you survive economically on your own which right now for a lot of people that's nope not really um, no. But it's interesting that that's <laughs> yeah. how we define it, right? Because it, it, it doesn't have to be that way. You don't have to define adulthood mm. as when can you survive on your own? When do you no longer need financial support? I mean, if you have a society that doesn't even do independent financial support, that you're living in a communal society, right. you're not going to define adulthood that way because that makes no sense. If you never you know, move out of the house because no one ever moves out of the house because you're living in some kind of a communal family environment... Well, how do you define when adulthood starts? What do you do? Yeah, I mean, it's like in Mexico, it is very common that nobody moves out from your parents' house until you're married. Like, that's just that's just what's normal, regardless of what age you do that. And if you don't marry, then you never move out. Because why would you need to? Why would you want to? <laughs> why would you want to move out and live on your own when you have no one to move out with? So, like, that's that's kind of the mindset. And I think that can be a very common thing to do. I mean, and and it is a thing. I mean, we talked about this a little bit when we had the home episode a few weeks ago. Like, what does the home mean? And is there necessarily a reason or expectations to move out at a certain age? Or is there none? Like, if, like, no, you want to maintain this sort of communal living. And why would you want to leave? We're your family. Why do you want to leave us? And 
so I think I think it's interesting to, to make those choices about about that stage in life in terms of what to challenge what you think those cultural expectations ought to be because do do characters need to leave are they expected to or or are they actually expected to stay home and is the act of leaving an act of defiance mm-hmm. and that there are other ways of like leveling up that don't involve moving out or yeah. you know financial stability i think it was when we had um tochi anibuchi on that we talked about ceremonies um and and one yeah. of the things we hit on quite a bit was the idea of having coming of age ceremonies um that yes. you know even in our culture we have graduation ceremonies from high school that are in many ways symbolic of this is the end of a period in your life you are graduating it's commencement you are commencing a new stage in your life in reality most of those you know kids are going right back home to the house they've grown up in with their parents and they're not going to formally move out of it for another four five plus years or more but we still mark that 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 somehow means something and that that meaning could be greater in a fantasy society that you build especially one that doesn't have that um that moving out as being such a big deal or just if you have a more formalized adulthood right like is the just the act of having that as being a cultural marker does that make that separation from child to adult that much more stark and that change like how you're what you're expected to do once you cross that barrier is far more defined. I, I was thinking about this earlier and how so many of our ceremonies about that transition period are either directly related to still or initially were and have drifted away from biological issues. Because you know one of the big transitions from child to adult is sexual maturity and the ability to reproduce and the desire to do so. Um, and so there are lots of societies that have that marker as, you know, the the whole very gendered idea of becoming a woman um, <laughs> when you start bleeding, which, I mean, that is a physical change you undergo, but how tied it is to your culture's concepts of gender or of age might vary. You know, having sex for the first time is often in our culture seen as a, you know, big defining, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm grown up now moment. But we also have things like driving a car becomes a marker of, of entering adulthood and, and the, when you turn 18 and can magically do all these things that you couldn't do before. And so I was thinking about like magical ways to do that. And it's like, maybe in your society, you're an adult when the dragon recognizes you as such and lets you ride it, you know, <laughs> like kids try to ride a dragon. They sort of shrug them off. Like, nope, nope, nope. Don't trust you. Nope. Not grown up enough yet. But maybe there comes a point where the dragon looks at you and goes, yeah, all right. You probably won't fall off on your own. Let's go for a ride. <laughs> Maybe that's what adulthood is. Maybe that's like your moment of transition. I feel like you'd need a lot of dragons as a as a norm just for that to be. Rec- <laughs> oh yeah, I was thinking like lots of dragons. This was imagining in my head, just like fucking up to here with dragons. Um, dragons like dogs, essentially, rideable everywhere. I mean, I like that regardless. Be- so. Yes. Well, but that also like a lot of things tend to use that same sort of adolescent marker of you know when of when magical powers will first appear 
because I mean that happens in so many things that you you don't really get magic until you also hit puberty mm-hmm. and that's probably that's probably wise because just because <laughs> you know, like they do the same thing with the x-men that their powers don't kick in usually, usually yeah until they hit puberty because there's sort of this recognition of like hmm if you had reality bending powers and you're a toddler wouldn't that be a horrible idea? <laughs> yes, it would. <laughs> Big yikes. Yeah. Big my, yikes uh, there. My my older daughter really likes My Little Pony. And they actually kind of deal with this because there is a, a baby unicorn who's born who has all these magical powers. And she's absolute hell to babysit. Because she can do things like disappear. Or like you know, like bounce around and, and it's just, it's nuts. Cause yeah, you, you wouldn't want to deal with that. That's just, that's terrifying actually to think about like babysitting or caring for permanently a small child with magical ability that can circumvent all of your parenting tricks and tactics. Well, there's that classic Twilight Zone episode with young Billy Moomy where like he's the six year old who has utter reality changing powers who can do whatever he wants and you know the whole town is just in complete fear of him and they all basically tiptoe around him because if you make him mad then he'll be all send you into the cornfield send you into the cornfield and so they're all just like just wandering around with these shell-shocked smiles of like whatever (laughs) happens it's good that you did that anthony it's good that you made it snow in July and ruined the ruined the crops. It's great. <laughs> or like um, Jack Jack in The Incredibles. Yeah. The baby yes. suddenly manifests all the powers, and the poor babysitter who's trying to put up with it. Um, and then of course, and the raccoon. <laughs> it's like the best scene. I love that. <laughs> but when you also reminded me with My Little Pony that in that society the transition is when you get your cutie mark, which. It's like a physical yes. manifestation of self-awareness in a particularly magical way. I like that. That sounds concept. weirdly terrifying. I like that concept. <laughs> yeah. It was a little I strange. I mean, I'm sure we, within the context of that, like everybody said, but like the idea is like, oh, you clearly you're not self-aware yet because it hasn't appeared. Like, no, there's a whole like, thing where like the three like little sibling yeah. um, ponies of some of the main six have like a whole complex about it because they haven't they haven't gotten their cutie marks yet and they're trying to figure out who they are it's pretty adorable but it really but that's with little siblings like i'm still i'm imagining like like the middle-aged pony who never got it and it's just a little like (laughs) (laughs) you know i think they they all they all get them still in like like full hood in my little pony but yes that would be that would be the the sad, depressing, lonely fanfic that no one wants to read is the middle-aged pony who never who never got their cutie mark. It's also funny how like some of the cutie marks are really specific to like their occupation and what they end up doing. And some of them are totally vague. And I definitely feel that were I a pony, I would have gotten one of the vague ones and looked at my own butt and been like, Well, I don't know what that's supposed to tell me. That that's useless. I don't what do I do with this starburst sign? I don't know. That gives me nothing. So, so once once you've gotten your your cutie mark or whatever society deems makes you an adult, um, what what does adulthood look like in the society that you that you build? Like, what are the markers of adulthood, or what can they be? I mean, I think 
I think we assume adults work. And yeah. perhaps it is, it is simply because I, I, I just turned 35 three days ago. Happy at birthday, the time, At the time we're, we're recording this episode. Thanks, guys. But it does sort of feel in, in that malaise that adulthood means you work until you die. <laughs> I mean, in that sense, yes, childhood is a protected class in even in societies where children work, there's not quite the same expectation of typically, usually in healthy societies, societies of like, (laughs) if you if you don't work, you don't eat or something like that. (laughs) Usually there's there's some protection um, built in for kids that is not there for adults Mm. when it comes to to livelihood anyway. But I mean, even even the most like communal, like farming village kind of scenario you're putting up, there's there would still be the basic expectation of if you're capable of helping out, you gotta do it. Like there's no like, you know, the rest of us will work in the field, but you no, just put your feet up. It's fine. <laughs> we'll we'll bring you up. We'll bring you a plate later. It's fine. No 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 no, you don't have to. Like that's. That tends to not be a thing unless there's a reason for it to be a thing one way or another, whether that involves, you know, that that person already has the money that they need to survive or or what have you. But usually, like, the idea of, like, you need to earn a living to live, and that's what adulthood looks like, seems, I mean, it feels like a presumption and it feels like there's some choice we're not necessarily seeing right now. And maybe that's because we're just so mired within our own that's what we live um but that seems to be a relatively fundamental truth that unless your society is totally post-scarcity then the idea of you have to do something and even if it is post-scarcity then you ought to do something Mm because what else are you sitting around for unless you're this immortal being that seems to be able to watch a mountain for 500 years you know (laughs) well it, it becomes um as so many things do, an economic question. You know, if, if your society has mm-hmm. an economy, then there is some generating force and that requires labor. If you have a post-scarcity economy, then yeah, like you're saying, it, <laughs> it changes the dynamic. Um, I am fascinated by the concept in Star Trek of a prestige economy where you work to be good at the thing and to be recognized as good at the thing. Um, and that gives you, you know, a cultural power a cultural currency to use almost um which is is a concept that that is not unique to star trek they the the romans had a concept of cultural currency that you could have dignitas and gravitas and that had an almost physical weight but they of course they also still had money and and work and things like that so it i think it's just hard for us to see our way past the economic conditions that we live in and that we know of historically because we have yet to have a post-scarcity economy because so far we can't make something out of nothing on this earth. Um, so it's just, it is a difficult imaginative leap, even for those of us whose career is built on being imaginative. I like what you say though, about um, cultural currency and working to succeed at something, because I think that that's another element that you can work into what adulthood means for a character because you know, you can have a character who has is working for survival, but even someone with a pretty, you know, ordinary everyday job could still be working for prestige in their, 
community could still be working for, you know, I want to be the best blacksmith. I want to be recognized for my metal work. I want to be known as the best embroiderer in the city. So I think that you can still have that as sort of like a, a goal of adulthood, that there's markers of achievement that you can still kind of have that aren't purely economic, that are sort of prestige oriented. But like, it does fascinate me. Like if you look at Star Trek as a great example of that, you have Say somebody like Cisco's father, mm-hmm. who runs this, who runs a Cajun restaurant in New Orleans, which is pretty labor-intensive work. That anytime we, the show goes to the restaurant and goes to see him, he's he's working. He's you know got his sleeves up. He's you know shucking oysters. He's peeling potatoes. He's doing real labor there. And he's like and seventy theory, he's, at that point. He's like and he's like seventy, but yet there is the sense of like. But he's not doing it for anything other than the love of doing it, which, like, is great, but also really, like, it's hard to imagine at that point just being like, I'm just tired, so no. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think that that leads into a good question of what what about that stage in life when when maybe work has ceased because you're just getting tired? Um how does a society deal with age right like at what point is it culturally acceptable to just be like you know what it's i get to i get to stop now like (laughs) i'm done i've done my piece (laughs) i've put in my time i remember reading or hearing somewhere that the idea of like the retirement age being 65 was come up with because actuaries basically ran the numbers and been like almost nobody is going to live past 65 so fine you know (laughs) and again that probably ties at least partially to that those those average numbers are wrong because you you brought that up earlier Cass, about the idea of that you know humans are not really significantly longer lived now than they were just that the average has gone up and that's because few of us are dying before we hit five. Yeah, like and... the the, the <laughs> yeah. whole idea that, oh, back in olden times, people died at 30. It's like, well, actually, mostly they didn't. Um, mostly they didn't die at 30. <laughs> A lot of them died before three. And that skews the entire average number down. But for, for most societies, you know, if you made it through the first couple years, you had a decent chance of making it to adulthood. And if you made it to adulthood you had a decent chance of making it to 60 or 70 and like longevity i think has stretched by about 10 years you know the average is more like 75 than 65 now for for if you take out the um infant mortality numbers then the expectation of longevity has stretched about a decade but not as drastically as people tend to think of it it's not twice as long as people used to have so yeah it's 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 changed a little bit but not not as much as people might think yeah i mean if we wanted to kind of like harken back to our childhood discussion a little bit um just making it to adulthood is kind of a marker in and of itself which diseases have you survived (laughs) you know oh you made it through measles good made it through mumps good made it through smallpox excellent you're golden you're a full-fledged go on your way you know you're probably gonna make it to 60 or something unless the plague comes Um, back you're probably good um Oh, oh, plague. Oh. <laughs> we just sat trombone the plague. Yeah, I mean... 
That's the point we're at now. Good. Good. Ah, <laughs> uh, the plague. <laughs> but, you know, I think that that, that pseudo fact um, has in some ways absolved us from, like, dealing with the fact that age exists in historical cultures. Yeah. Old people exist. They are there in, you know, almost as great of numbers as we might encounter today. So how do you, you know, how do you deal with them when you're writing a fantasy culture? They're not, they're not, not there because they all kicked it at 40, unless you're going to write a culture in which that is how it works and everyone gets eaten by the dragon at 40. Logan's run. You get to ride the dragon when you're an adult, but then it eats you when you're 40. <laughs> Sorry. Or that's, that's that thing. At 40, you get on the dragon and if it eats you, then it was your time. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> kind of Logan's Run esque, but with a dragon. Mm -hmm. I, you know. mm -hmm. I like that. That's. I think there's at least a short story in there somewhere. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. What well, sort of? It's because at a certain point in in age, you you go back to a kind of vulnerability, whether that is because you know you're you're tired and the joints don't work the same way and your strength isn't what it was 30 years ago or because you are more susceptible to disease again in old age um or you know you start forgetting things and and need some help to remember that it's it's sort of <laughs> there's these mirror vulnerabilities on either side of adulthood in the normal human lifespan of course you can make choices that are not a normal human lifespan um and, and could do away with that mirror. But I think it is interesting to think about how societies deal with that. Are there nursing homes? Are there collective homes for seniors? Are there, is there an expectation that you return to your children's home and they take care of you? Um, just like who has to take care of the kids, who has to take care of granny? And mm -hmm. and then what does she do while she's being that... taken care of? Does she, does she teach the small ones? Does she do the handcrafts and things that don't require as much strength? But is there that cultural expectation of like you, you're supposed to take them in and they're that you defer to them in all things because because they are the elders like are, what are those expectations? And, and... I, I had a, a friend in high school who like hypothesized a society and I don't know if he ever did anything with this or wrote anything on it, but he explained it to us all over lunch period one day and like he had charts and graphs that he was drawn on the chalkboard. It was great, <laughs> but he had a thesis um, of of life phases and his idea was basically that like in your 20s and 30s you you should procreate have the babies make the babies but then hand them off to your elders that like people didn't raise their own children that the, the older generation looked after the kids so the young active people could be doing young active things and and both having lots of sex and doing lots of work things without worrying about protecting the vulnerable ones that the older generation looked after them. And like, I thought that was an interesting idea. Like that would be an interesting way to shape a society. Um, and I think that's, oh, 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 I'm remembering an example now and it's from sci-fi and I can't, um, long way to a small angry planet. Um, one of the alien Ooh, species in that, that, which I can't remember the name of now, functions sort of like that, that like they make their babies and then sort of leave them. It's like, oh yeah, that's related to me, I guess. I kind of forgot because someone else is raising it. Like, that's not my job yet. That's, it will be my job to raise someone else's biological children when we get to that point. Um, so it's just, yeah, thinking about like what the cultural expectations of, of who does the raising and who does the teaching and, and who does the caring, I think can shift between generations. 
since you brought up an alien race that does, you know, that has their own specific method, I, I, I think a lot about, especially if, if you're doing something sci-fi where you have a bunch of different aliens or doing something fantastical where you have elves and humans and dwarves and all that, like if each species has different lifespan styles, different expectations, then what happens when you have those interactions? Like if you've got, you know, an elf, a dwarf, a hobbit, and a human who are all 25, but what 25 means to them are radically different things. Like, like how, how do they interact over the course of time? I had a D&D character once who was, um, she was a wood elf, and she was like 150, but she was on her room springa. <laughs> it was my wood elf room springa where she was like, I'm going to try all the things. <laughs> it was excellent but she's 150 because that was her you know just about maturity and i had a lot of fun with that <laughs> she had... and see there there's a good example of an adulthood right of like hey this is our culture this is what it's like and it's not for everyone so go do other things for a while and then decide <laughs> if this is not for you or not or at least get it out of your system you want to return to the forest and, and make things grow yeah but yeah it's like the, the same age can mean wildly different things to, to different um, species. I mean, that's back to Baby Yoda, right? Like, they say it in the first yeah. episode. Like, it's 50 years old. Like, that was not what I was expecting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, and I think even, even if you aren't dealing with different um, races within a fantasy, even different cultures can have different expectations for what ages are. So if you have a culture where, you know, kids are, are educated from the ages of, like, five till they're you know, like 18, and then they have some kind of, you know, apprenticeship after that, but it's very soft and cushy and like working in a library. And then you have another culture where, you know, kids are working in the field and training horses and they're like participating in dangerous horse races from the time they're 10 on. You're going to have different like outlooks on what does maturity mean? Um, and what does, you know, what can you expect out of these kids? What can you expect them to be able to resp be responsible for and do? Um, and I, you could have some some fun with that, um, developing different ideas of maturity and different ideas of expectations um, and the tensions that you'd have over that. Like each side's gonna be judging each other that my way is better and my you know I'm raising my kids better than you. Um, and yeah, because <laughs> nothing gets people more riled up than you're raising your kids wrong. So. It also raises the question of, like, how much space is there between childhood and old age? Like, for, for your species or your culture, what does that look like? How much of your life is spent in that percentage? Um, the, the thing I think about with this is, is a function of the medium, not necessarily the storytelling. But the fact that all of the X-Men have been, like, 35 or younger since the mid-60s. Like, they've all been between the ages of 18 and 35 for... <laughs> 60 years now. <laughs> just, I mean, it's the way the medium you, works. You really want, like, like a, like a senior citizen X-Men, right? Like... like, even Xavier and Magneto, who are, like, some of the oldest ones, are still, like, super buff. <laughs> yeah. Like, oh, those mutant, mutant genes have no telomeres attached I, to the I end of them, apparently. Like, bust out a walker, you know? Like... They're, they're still they're still really badass but they they need they need a walker to get around and that afternoon nap at four my mutant ability had nothing to do with my the cartilage in my knees are now <laughs> the most comics accurate 
thing in any of the movies is in the McAvoy, Fassbender, X-Men movies, where each movie is a different decade, but they age maybe a year between each one. <laughs> yeah, that's the most comics accurate thing. It's like, you tell, you tell time has happened because their clothes have changed, not because anything about them has. Well, and... And those are also specifically stories that may, that have a whole thing with the illusion of change mm. and maintaining things being a certain same way over the course of decades. Because, I mean, I remember, you know, in reading X-Men comics from the 80s and 90s, I think I have somewhere three completely different comic books of completely different issues where Kitty Pride has her 16th birthday. <laughs> probably, probably. <laughs> Because, like, they keep, you know, being like, have her be eternally, like, finally in the comics, she's now, like, in her early 20s. But, like, I'm actually surprised that they've not, like, rebooted that to some degree of, like, you know, let's, let's pull them back to teenagers now. <laughs> Give it time, man. You know, and it's, it's like, it's funny. But at the same time, I feel like, like, fantasy as a genre has kind of a hard time with older people as mm. protagonists like yep. we don't do that very much if there are older characters they're usually like the wise old sage or the grandmother who sends you out on the adventure like it's they're not usually the protagonist and it's you know it's kind of interesting um because it in some ways makes me think of our conversation with elsa the other week mm -hmm. Um, that we also have a problem with disability and it's like we can't wrap our minds around someone who is going to be able to do different things physically is is still able to be a fantasy protagonist like you can still put that person in a leading role even if their knees are creaky or even if they are in a stage of life that's like past that you know young protagonist 16 to 25 like i'll never get over i had several um like readers say that the protagonist in my book was older like she's 26 27 throughout the course of the book like that's older in fantasy fiction yeah. like that's 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 but a young cop sarah Bester's has some like that where it's like the the heroes and heroines are in their 30s and 40s and those are perceived as older which they are compared to all the teenagers running around saving the world but like that's really not that old god i hope i have more years in me that left than that right. um, <laughs> hope that's not all there is but yeah, no, I mean, that's definitely a thing that I I would like more fiction to explore. I hope I do a better job of exploring it in the future. I'm still liking my idea I came up with a few weeks ago about you only get magic when you hit old age and magic magic fighting grannies, like the magic fighting granny army. I'm, I'm thinking about that. You know who didn't fall into that trope? Terry Pratchett. Yeah. I mean, the answer to so many, like, why don't more books do this or do that? It's like... Terry Pratchett. Because I could never do it as well as Terry Pratchett, <laughs> so I'm giving up now. Like, <laughs> that's not the answer. Always, always try and do it, even if Terry Pratchett already did. It. <laughs> like, mm, it's like I will never write a character as good as Esme Weatherwax, and I just have to make my peace with that. And GNU <laughs> <laughs> Terry Pratchett. All right. Anyway. <laughs> We are elves to dogs. That's true, but you know, <laughs> see, that's that is the thing. That is the thing that kind of fascinates me the most is like when you have these cultures that are side by side that have radically different 
life spans and life cycles like how does that play out culturally like not just in terms of the expectation but in terms of like the interaction like if you have these semi-immortal elves who 150 is you know is the rumspring at time where it's like just coming into adolescence and like that the humans in the village next door have had three generations since since you know she first met them and like the kids she played with from that village died of old age and she's playing with their great grandkids in the same way like is that is that like how does that work in terms of how you what are the choices you can make in terms of how those things interact because i think that's a thing that gets very glossed over like you'll have like you'll have like your semi-immortal elves just be sort of like ageless and distant but you don't see you don't see so much how that interaction works in fact more often than not books tend to push the lack of interaction Mm -hmm. to like play to play up just how alien and different the cultures are but yeah well i mean think of the the sort of or example there being lord of the rings and yeah the elves and men no longer mix in society they they're separate and it makes you sort of understand why elrond looks at them all like they're fucking idiots because to him to him they're children like there's these toddlers running around with swords and (laughs) i can't can't possibly (laughs) trust them to make good decisions but they don't interact that much you're right i I sort of like that idea of marshall of, of having a a world where they live in the same village and and have to deal with that in a, in a more real sort of way but that's why i said yeah. i like that concept it's a i stole this from a tumblr post that we are elves to dogs dogs yeah. think of us as these incredibly <laughs> long-lived creatures <laughs> who you know are benevolent towards them and, and and take care of them and and they will never know what our lives look like at the end they, they will never know what we are like when we are old and grave but they will never see it but we are wise and knowing and we have the ways of the universe especially the ways of the entries yes we know how to we know how to door we have the mystery of the door <laughs> and the can mm-hmm. opener mm-hmm. the almighty can <laughs> opener magic <laughs> but i i think that's that's a fun thing i mean i don't usually do much of anything with different different species on the same in the same world but you know playing with the idea of what that means when you know something is one species is long-lived and the other ones are fireflies and or even it's not different species maybe it's a magic thing maybe it's magic imbues long life upon you and do you get extended or the yeah yeah or the opposite maybe you burn out faster that that, i've seen less of that i feel like i feel like i've seen the magic longevity before Um, but julie trinata her book, uh, The Gossamer Mage, that's how mm. magic worked, that you were burning your own lifespan every time you cast a spell. So basically doing it, you know, you died of old age at 23 because. Yeah, because especially if you get it before you have the wisdom to, like, figure out how to ration it. Like, man, if I'd been having that kind of magical power at 13, I'd have been dead by 15. <laughs> <laughs> I would have burned through it all because I wouldn't have had the sense not to, you know, when you're a kid, you don't yeah. have that kind of good sense unless there's someone physically stopping you from doing it. So I haven't read that. I, it's on, you know, on my very long list, but that's an interesting, that's a really interesting concept that using magic sort of steals time from yourself. Yeah. 
which then makes it be this very like like oh you want to hire me to cast a spell it's gonna cost you because it's gonna cost me that's a what's a week <laughs> of my life worth to you yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> and somehow that takes us back to economy <laughs> we can't yep, it we always cannot does. escape it we ever. always we always come back to death and taxes and money <laughs> and i think that that probably hits all three mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> Unless, of course, you're in the Star Trek universe where there's no money and apparently no taxes and St- circumventing death seems to be a thing that happens. Well, it is now. I, mean, I feel like we've we've kind of hit it all we've... and we're... I can start singing Circle of Life <laughs> again. I don't know. <laughs> we could. We've done it all and now we're old and tired. <laughs> yes. I think that 2020 has aged all of us. In my gray ways. hairs have doubled literally doubled because i know Same. where they are because i pluck them because i hate them <laughs> and there are more than there were nine months ago don't like it i don't care for it no good that is that is actually that is actually an interesting topic in general of in your society is age something that's embraced with grace or is it something that's fought like Feared and run away from. Which I I think relates to in your society is age respected or is age treated as a handicap or (laughs) something to, you know, be relegated to the the back room because you're, you know, you're not productive or you're not attractive or whatever um, is viewed in your society as being associated with age. Right. Because I'm thinking of, what is it? It's in Jitterbug Perfume, the, the Tom Robbins novel, where the king from somewhere in Bohemia in the 10th century is plucking the gray hairs out of his beard because in their society, they're like, well, we all we want all our kings to be at the peak of their ability. So once once they start to get old, they need to be put to death. You know, so that, you know... I appreciate that because most of the time it's women who aren't allowed to age. You know, you have the silver fox in in male-figured humans who who get to do that and, and who are allowed to go gray and still be sexy, but it is a much harder thing for, for female-figured humans to get away with, at least in our current cultural context. Um, so I appreciate that. I appreciate that, that that guy had to pluck his beard. I'm... There we go. <laughs> well, I think it's interesting because... I, it's almost like age either ends up being something that we fear, are ashamed of, or trying to avoid, or it's like revered and put on a pedestal and there is this wisdom of our elders. It's pretty seldom, I feel like, especially in fiction, that we just treat old people as humans. Like they're just ordinary people, they're just older. Um, and I don't know if there's room for that in, in fantasy to play with a little bit more, especially as protagonists, but just as, as characters. Like they're not they're not better or worse for having aged all these years. They are just they're just people. Well, much like so often in fantasy, protagonists are like the young, vibrant people. It's almost as if if you're going to put an old character in there, it better be for a reason. Like they better be there to impart wisdom or to train or something like that because why else would you even have it which is of course a ridiculous thing to do it's almost like you would get the question that people get when they have um a queer character like well why why did you make this character gay why is this character like why is this character old like (laughs) because 
Because you can. Because those are people <laughs> Cause, that cause, exist. Because that's a thing that happens. Yeah. But... <laughs> there doesn't have is to it, be a... Is there a reason they have to be old? Yes, the <laughs> passage of time. The fact that the Earth continues to <laughs> rotate and revolve around the sun is the reason that there have to be old people. The continuity of the space-time continuum is why. But does there have to be continuity in the space-time continuum? Isn't that just... Isn't that a presumption? Mike would say no, but... (laughs) (laughs) And on that note... (laughs) And on that note of choosing versus presuming your face... Before we break it? Yeah, that's probably a good idea. Perhaps I think we should it's probably already broken at this point. <laughs> but explain a lot, let's be real. Hi, you. Thanks for listening to this episode of World Building for Masochists and letting us help you overcomplicate your writing life. Our next episode goes up on October 28th when we'll be getting spooky and talking about witches and witchcraft and its place in secondary world fantasy. We really hope you liked this episode. If you did, please take a minute to tell a friend, shout about us on the internet, or leave a review on iTunes. If you got questions or just want to tell us how cute we are there's a number of ways to contact us we're on twitter at at worldbuildcast and our email is worldbuildcast at gmail.com we also have a discord chat room linked in the about the show page of our website if you want to come chat with us and other fans of the podcast we'd love for you to share the worlds you're making and help us all build until it hurts